This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. In the last episode, we talked about how to get organized at work. This was an episode we originally released as episode two. Many of you have gone back to the beginning and listened all the way through. We also recognize a good majority of you have not done that, so we wanted to expose you to some of our earlier content so you can consider if you'd like to go back early on in the podcast and listen all the way through. The episode we're releasing to you today was one of our monthly One Thing webinars. Every month, we try to sit down with a best-selling author to bring their book to our audience, to share the ideas. The woman we met, Dr. Susan David, wow, I, I new BFF. I love her. We had an incredible, incredible conversation about how do you develop a world-class mindset with emotional agility. What you're going to hear today was the live webinar that we did. If you're interested in finding out what webinars we have coming up, next month we have Deep Work with Cal Newport. Go to the onething.com slash webinar and you can see the upcoming webinar and be able to register for that so you can join live and have the opportunity to ask the author questions during our Q&A session, which you'll get to hear here as well. So with that, let's get into the webinar we did with Dr. Susan David of Emotional Agility. So Susan, let's just get straight into it. What is emotional agility? What does it take to develop this world-class mindset? Absolutely. So the focus of my work is on this idea of emotional agility. And put really simply, it's answering this one question consistent with the one thing. The question is, what does it take internally in the way we deal with ourselves, our psychology? So that often includes our thoughts, our emotions, the stories that we tell ourselves. What does it take internally to thrive? Mm. Because what we know is how we navigate our inner worlds drives everything, drives every aspect of how we love, how we live, how we parent, how we lead. And so the focus of my work, my background is as a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and then working in organizations. The focus is really asking what does the research really tell us about what it takes to be effective internally? This is hitting home for me just because of the amount of work I've been doing internally in terms of growth. And I even heard recently that anytime you're having a conversation, it's not one conversation. There's a conversation I'm having with you. There's the conversation you're having with me, the conversation I'm having with myself and the conversation you're having with the self. And most of our conversations are with ourselves. And hey, Susan just happens to be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so often it's that inner voice, that inner conversation, those inner emotions that actually shape whether we put our hands up for the project or whether we actually throw our hat into the ring for a particular pitch or even how we interact with our kids when we're stressed. It's that inner conversation that really shapes so much of our lives. Where do we start? Because I don't remember what grade I learned to reflect inward instead of looking outward. Um, oh yeah, that never happened. So how do we begin that journey? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that so much of what we are taught is actually at odds with our well-being. Mm. So we live in a society, particularly uh, in Western societies, that tell us that we should be positive. We should 
have a good attitude, we should be happy, we should strive for happiness. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-happiness. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very happy person and I actually I wish I'd have bought it today. I edited a 80-chapter handbook called the Oxford Handbook of Happiness. You know, what do we know that helps to cultivate happiness? Um, but what's really fascinating is that so much of what we are taught about is this idea of positive thinking and that positive thinking really matters so much. And yet there's a large body of research that challenges this, that shows that people who overly strongly strive to be happy actually over time become more and more unhappy. That they, for example, are upset at the way they've been treated in their jobs and they say, well, at least I've got a job. And so what they do is they often push those difficult emotions aside in the service of being happy and what it does is it actually undermines their ability to be effective, to focus on what they need to. And so one of the first things that I talk about in emotional agility, and this applies to children, but as equally to ourselves, is to recognize that our emotions, our difficult emotions, whether that's sadness or disappointment or you feeling stressed or you feeling betrayed, our difficult emotions are not bad things. Uh, they've evolved to help us as a species to survive. And so when we, instead of trying to jostle and hustle with them and push them aside, if we instead kind of open our hearts to them and say, you know, what is my emotion trying to tell me here? What we start to realize is something actually magnificent which is that our difficult emotions often contain signposts to the things that we care about. So for example, if you're feeling guilty as a parent, what that's often telling you is that your presence and connectedness with your child is important. Or when you're feeling undermined at work, what that's often telling you is that a sense of fairness and equity is important to you. So one of the first aspects of emotional agility is actually doing away with so much of the noise that gets in the way of us having a clean relationship with ourselves. And that is to open our hearts to our emotions and what our emotions are telling us and try to learn from them. Now, one really important caveat to this is that I like to say emotions are data, not directions. Mm. They are data in that they contain signposts to things that we care about, but they're not facts. And so often we treat our emotions as directions. You know, I'm being undermined, therefore I'm just going to shut up. Or the person's an idiot, so I'm just not going to share this information. Or, you know, my husband's starting in on the finances, so I'm just going to leave the room. When we often get uncomfortable with things, we treat our emotions and our thoughts as directions. They're not. What I heard you say is first and foremost, recognizing that every emotion serves a purpose. You're talking to the guy who pretty much radiates sunshine and rainbows every single day. I am Mr. Positive. My assistant over here is just cracking up because of it. Um, yeah, that just happened. <laughs> um, and I've, I've, I remember learning, like, don't focus on the negative, focus on the positive. What I'm hearing you say, Susan, is that it serves a purpose to open your heart up, to provide the space for it where you can acknowledge the emotion and ask what purpose is this serving? Not that, hey, I'm feeling undermined, therefore going to go tell my boss to read between the lines. Ask, Absolutely. this is telling you that something matters to me. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that when people open their hearts up and they say, what is it that I'm feeling right now? 
what we know is that those emotions actually dissipate more quickly if they're difficult emotions. Um, but those people become more resilient, more capable, and more successful over time. So there's something about, it's not about being happy, it's about striving to be happy in a way that pushes aside difficulties that actually stops our ability to be agile and adaptive in the world. A world in which life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility, where we are young until we're not, uh, where we in jobs we love until that job isn't there, where mm. we are, you know, sexy and gorgeous until we're unseen. And so only when we develop skills that help us to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be, do we become more capable and effective in all aspects of our lives? Can you share an experience of what this has looked like for you? Because I'm hearing you say this from a 40,000 foot level. It makes sense to yes. me, but where in your life would, quote, the average person have really gone into the negative emotion and you were able to acknowledge it and look at it for what it is? Well, I can give you an example from our own life, <laughs> which is a personal example, but I'm, but you know, one of the things that I talk about when I was writing Emotional Agility is how I had um, been working for many, many years on a particular concept. And I had, in a moment of um, trust and being unguarded, I went to an academic conference and a colleague of mine, far more famous and powerful and, you know, rich than I will ever be, asked me what it was that I was working on. And so I told him. And many months later, I was sitting in Starbucks, as one does, and I was working on this idea. I was, I was uh, writing a book about this idea, and it was such a huge investment that I'd made into it. And I notice a voicemail that uh, comes through on my phone, and it's this colleague of mine. And the colleague basically says this to me. Susan, I hope you don't mind but I am writing a book at the moment and the publisher and I are trying to come up with a title for the book that I'm writing. I hope you don't mind me using your concept as the title for my new book. So, of course, I was like, mind? You know, of course I mind. It's my idea. It's my concept. Um, you know, this is, no, that's not okay. And the trapdoor to my heart opened when I went online to Amazon and realized that my colleague's question was not a question, that in fact, the book was actually available for pre-order. So I did what most people would do in that situation. I called my husband <laughs> to vent. <laughs> and this is, <laughs> so, so this is how the conversation goes. And many of your listeners will identify and empathize with this. So my husband is a physician and he answers the phone like this. He says, Susan, can't talk now. Got a patient lying on the table waiting for an emergency procedure. Clunk. So I get off the phone and I say things like, the one time, the one time that I need him, he's not available. And so I start to plan that when his callback comes, which it will, it will be my turn to be unavailable. Now, the reason that I give this example is because instead of being able to have an effective conversation with my colleague, I did what so many of us do. It's like we crawl into a story of the one time I need that one person, they're not available. And now I've been, you know. And so, you know, what's really interesting is when you bring that perspective, what you start recognizing is that I was treating my thoughts, my emotions, my stories as 
facts as things that I was climbing into and that were actually stopping me from being effective. You know, they um serving divorce papers on my husband, whose only crime was trying to save his patient's life. Um, and that's kind of an extreme but but very common example. And so what I talk about in emotional agility is how so often we get hooked. Our thoughts, our emotions, our stories start to dominate us, start to drive us, rather than mm. other ways that we can be in the world, our values, our intentions, um, what kind of relationship do you want to have? What's important to you? And so in emotional agility, I talk about this idea of why it is we get hooked mm. as human beings and then practically what it actually looks like when we start unhooking and living our lives with greater levels of intention. So how do we begin to bring more focus and transparency to the emotions that we feel and make sure that we are treating them the right way? So I think that's a beautiful question. I love that, you know, transparency to our emotions is, you know, so often we live in a world where, again, as I mentioned, we told we should be happy all the time. And so often what we do is we start developing from a very young age relationships with ourselves that actually don't serve us. Mm. Often we'll do, for example, we'll bottle our emotions. We'll push them aside. We'll say things like, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. Or we'll start brooding on our emotions, dwelling on them again and again. You know, I'm upset that we didn't get the contract. That means I'm a failure. This is terrible. This is terrible. And so what we want to do is we want to give our emotions a place, the data place, but they shouldn't crowd out everything in our lives. Again, data, not directions. So what are some key strategies for this? One first one is to start opening yourself up to the full range of emotions, to stop doing this thing where you say, I shouldn't feel this. I'm feeling guilty, but I shouldn't. You know, I, I don't have a right to. So that's a key aspect. A second practical strategy is simply labeling the emotion for what it is. So often what we do is we say things like, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm so stressed. And we label everything as being stressed. But there's a world of difference between I'm stressed versus sad versus disappointed versus angry. Now, if I'm working with a CEO who says to me, I'm just feeling stressed, I'm going to say, okay, well, let's delegate more because isn't that the you know, golden thing that we do when people are stressed. But what if what's really underlying that CEO's emotion is I feel disappointed in my legacy or I'm in the wrong career? Then tips on delegation don't start to even cut it. And so what's fascinating is it's only when we start to just label our emotions more accurately in a more nuanced way we start to actually learn from them. There are other strategies that I can share as well that are very, very practical, well, but that's real a quick, am, am I, Let me know. And this is also just from, from listening to some of your past interviews, is the difference between saying, I am stressed versus I am feeling stressed. Is that part of the shift? Critical, critical. So you mentioned earlier that you do a lot of mindfulness and mindfulness, of course, is about noticing your thoughts and feelings for what they are, thoughts and feelings. They, they are important, they're useful, but they're not everything. So when you start to notice your thoughts and feelings, what that does is it starts to create space between you and the emotion. Um, an example is when you say, I am anxious or I am stressed, you can see that what you're doing is you are 100% of you, the I am of you 
is stressed or Your anxious. being is a being of stress and anxiety. Everything, everything. So if you start doing something super simple, I am noticing that I'm feeling stressed. There it is. I'm noticing that I'm feeling anxious. I'm noticing the thought that my colleague is an idiot and that I'm starting to shut down. I'm noticing the urge to. What you do is you start to create the space. Now, just critically, why is the space important? Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi death camps, writes and, and describes this incredibly beautiful idea, which I think is the power of every single one of us to harness, and it's this. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that comes our growth and freedom. When we are hooked, when we're using our thoughts, our emotions as fact, there's no space between stimulus and response. So our thoughts are telling us to do something. What we want to try to do is create a space, recognizing that they're thoughts. And when you open up that space, what do you insert into that space? You insert choice, values, intention. Who do I want to be? What is the one thing that matters to me now? I'm just going to pause, let that sink real quick for people. If you walk away, because this is always about bringing value to you, we love and we honor you for being here, whether you're here live, whether you're listening to this on the podcast later. If you just walked away from this with the intention of every day acknowledging your feelings instead of saying, I am stressed, I am anxious, and saying, I'm noticing that I am feeling stressed, we would be curious what the payoff would be for you there. Susan, there's one thing I heard you say before that was such a writer downer and I rewound it like three times and it was that discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. What does that mean? So again, we are told that we can fix everything in our lives. You know, if we don't like our cell phone, we can go buy a new one. If we don't like our marriage, we can find a new partner. Um, and so often what we try to do is we try to do the same with our thoughts and emotions. We try to fix them so that they are desirable, so they're happy, so they these kinds of things. And so, again, we start getting into this very difficult space. And what becomes critical to recognize is that, you know, even if you are feeling stressed, even if you are feeling betrayed or sad or you in grief, you know, and, and I talk about my own experience in the book of my dad dying and some of the things that I went through in this experience is those are, you know, critically important aspects of the beauty of human fragility. And so we don't get to have a meaningful job or to have a meaningful career or to raise children without experiencing some level of stress and discomfort. And so discomfort is the price of admission for a meaningful life. You know, if you decided you were going to climb Mount Everest today, you wouldn't expect that climbing Mount Everest was going to be like a walk in the, the, the park, you know, with a cafe latte in your hand. Sounds pretty good. You would expect, you know, if you were going to climb Mount Everest, you would expect there to be some cold, dark, lonely days. And that would be part of a values-aligned experience for you. And it's the same when it comes to other aspects of our lives, whether it's growing a business or growing a family or mm. growing your self-knowledge, that often that requires going to discomfort with yourself, 
because it's in that discomfort that we learn and we experience. And the opposite, where we are in a space of comfort, is often a space of atrophy. Yeah. My question for everybody who's listening to this right now is, what's that truth that deep down you know is real and you're hiding from it? You know that if you were to able to look at it for what it is and to face it head on, that's where the growth is. That's where the breakthrough is. Yet day after day, you choose to ignore it and act like it doesn't appear. And that is profound. Uh, I think it's such a powerful question to ask people. And as you ask it, I ask myself it. Because, you know, again, I I challenge in the book, I, I talk about, for example, the idea of grit. And don't get me wrong, again, you know, I I think that there's a lot to be said for grit. You know, if you're doing something that's important to you, you're writing a book, you're starting a business, you, you know, there's so much to be said for gritting through things. But the caveat is that those things need to be values aligned. They need to be things that you have a chance of success at. There are a whole lot of criteria that make that grit worthwhile. And so one of the things that I talk about in emotional agility is this idea that we've got to know when to grit, but as equally, we also need to know when to quit. Mm -hmm. Because one of the most important signs of human adaptation is recognizing that when a goal that you've been setting, whether it's a job, a career, a promotion, a particular project, we need to be able to recognize that sometimes keeping on at that particular thing is a sign of grittiness, um, but actually can be a sign of a lack of adaptation, that human beings need to be able to disengage effectively from a goal and re-engage with another goal. And that becomes critical because otherwise you start getting into the space where you're so busy doing the busy, even if you've said that busy is important, but where you aren't being attentive to what is the truth in your heart that allows you to be more adaptive and effective. Hey folks, we wanted to let you know that if you'd like to get a copy of Emotional Agility on Audible, Audible is sponsoring this episode, which means if you are not yet a current Audible customer, you can go to audible.com slash one thing, and you can get a free copy of Emotional Agility. If you are already an Audible customer like myself, this is well worth your credit. So we wanted to thank Audible for sponsoring this show and helping more people get a copy of Emotional Agility today. Go to audible.com slash one thing to get your copy now. Okay, you've given me two rabbit holes that I knew I wanted to go down. I'm going to use one first because you've said this word so many times, values. The reason yes. that people stopped me, saw me step away is because I had to draw this out. This is on page 134 of the book. We call it the iceberg analogy. The challenge is that most people in their life just look at what's above the surface. Profit or the results that they get and productivity is the actions that they take. And when they're not happy with the results, they just focus on taking different action and they wonder why they don't end up living a life they want to live. Well, the answer is beneath the surface. You can't get results if you don't take the right actions. You can't take the right actions if you don't know your priorities, and you can't know your priorities if you ultimately don't know your purpose. 
this is where the big question mark for our audience is, Susan, is that journey to discovering the purpose, the journey to us discovering your yes. values. How do we begin to make values-based decisions? So these are critical and values are often seen as being cheesy. You know, they're, they're the things on walls in businesses telling everyone how to behave. It's because um, those businesses are cheesy. <laughs> but it's really interesting. And, and I think it's such a huge loss because really the way I think of values is that values are qualities of, ac of action. They're not these abstract ideas that are on walls. They are qualities of every day who I want to be. Mm -hmm. So for example, imagine I, and I'll use, you know, a fairly obvious example. Imagine I value health. I get to make hundreds of choice points every day. Do I make a choice that is towards my value of health and choose the fruit or away from my value of health? So the way that I see values is that they're qualities of action. And what starts to happen when people are not connected with their values is two really interesting uh, social psychological phenomena. The first is that we know that people who aren't connected with their work and their lives in a values-based way start to develop greater levels of burnout more effectively. So you go to work every day and you smile and, you know, we all do the work that we do and we as part of that work, there's this thing called emotional labor, the emotional work that we all do at work. Now, when you look at people who do what is called surface acting, where they just kind of making nice and putting on the smile, but they can't wait to get through their day, that surface acting is associated over time with higher levels of burnout, lower levels of well-being. And this becomes serious uh, when we look at by 2030, depression. Depression, not heart disease, not cancer, not diabetes, depression is targeted to be the single leading cause of disability globally. What we start recognizing is that getting in greater alignment with our lives becomes critical. And of course, there are many reasons for depression. So it's not only about values, but we know that this surface acting becomes very difficult for people. Another thing that starts to happen when you aren't attuned to your values is we start to do more of what is called engage in social contagion. So let me give you an example. You go on an airplane and you kind of vaguely in your mind have decided that you want to lose weight. Now, your seatmate, who you do not even know, buys candy. Judgment. Your chance, yeah, your chance of buying candy increases 30%. So what starts to happen is you see something that other people are doing, the cars that they're driving, the businesses that they've got, the way they're living their lives, and suddenly we want the same. And before you know it, you turn around and you're living a life that isn't yours or isn't connected with who you truly want to be. Mm. So values becomes critical in this conversation of emotional agility. This is really interesting. Um, in our Living Your One Thing community, one of the most common themes we've experienced, we really didn't anticipate this happening, was people, when we walk them through the process of setting goals, what we believe is the right way, they look up and they say, wow, I realized I've been setting goals based on what society said I should be wanting versus what I actually want. It's like for three, four, five, six decades, they've never looked inward. Oh, there it is again, inward and asked, what do I even want? Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's a powerful, powerful thing to do. When you do that, even in small ways, it alters the trajectory of your day. Because when you said yourself, you, you know, for example, when I was writing this book, um, there were some hard choices that I needed to make. Uh, they often meant that I was sitting in the library instead of being with my children, for example. But in my mind, that essence, which is I am trying to create a particular piece of music here in this book that is critical, and this is why I am bringing myself to this book, I'm trying to create music. When you do something that's about what society is trying to get you to do, you're often trying to create applause. Yep. And so, you know, this idea of freeing yourself to create music rather than applause, it's often the values inside that will help you to understand what your music is that might be very different from what your next door neighbor is doing. Well, you just said something that I know is a huge question mark for a lot of people because when at the beginning we showed the seven circles, the seven most important areas of your life, your spirituality, physical health, your personal life, your job, your business, your finances, key relationships was in there. What do you do when your values conflict? I want to show up in my business fully so I can scale this business that makes this massive impact. And inherently it conflicts with my ability to be present with my family, which conflicts with my ability to be at the gym, which conflicts with my ability to invest in my spiritual life. How do you balance that? Or do you? So the first thing I would say is welcome to being a mortal human. <laughs> you know, part of, yeah, da, 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 da. So I would, I look at this in a different way. Often people say, I've got a values conflict, exactly as you describe. What I would suggest is that often what we call a values conflict is not a values conflict. It's a goals conflict. Now, let me explain what I mean. I value my children and I also value my work and I also value my health. So imagine your values are like a, a diamond and you've got different facets of the diamond. Now, sometimes one facet is going to be facing you more full on. You are investing time in building a business and this requires a particular amount of energy and effort. It doesn't mean that the rest of the diamond doesn't exist. That full diamond is there. Your values are your values and they all exist in a beautiful whole way for you. So what's in conflict at that time is often your goals. You know, my goal of being at my children's concert and my goal of being at this business meeting at the same time. And there are a number of things that I explore in the book in relation to this. The first is that there is an enormous amount of power that we give ourselves when we come to those goal conflicts by saying, you know, I'm choosing to, for example, in this case, go to this meeting because it is just as important for me to be able to put food on the table and to support other aspects of my children's life. And so what you're doing is you're choosing between those goals, but you're choosing with a greater level of values, clarity, and a lack of feeling torn where you in the meeting and upset about it. Mm. So there's enormous power in making these kinds of um, goal-based decisions, but it's often not the values that are in conflict. It's often our goals. And sometimes 
sometimes we, you know, need to recognize that part of our goal's conflict is actually a conflict that we have because we are human, mm. because we are mortal, because we can't be in two places at one time. And so there's there's um, something so profound in being able to make those choices and then to let go of the other goal for that time. I well, it's it was powerful me for me to hear you talk about the diamond. It's not that the other sides don't exist. It's not that they're not important. It may not be the very front and center primary focus for that exact moment. Where this is yeah. extraordinarily aligned with the one thing is the idea of work-life balance. We do not believe it exists. It is work-life counterbalance. You do not balance work and relationships in your family. You are at work and at that moment, how can you go all in on work so you can shut it down at a pre-prescribed time, shift and be present with your family where you are all in on the family. It is a counterbalance for your life. Absolutely. And even, even when people talk about traveling, like they, you know, they do a huge amount of travel. And so you then start asking yourself with greater levels of intentionality, how can I, if being a present parent is important to me and I'm needing to travel as an example, how can I establish that presence in my family while I'm traveling? So instead of me quickly skipping the Skype call, you know, I'm choosing to do it, but, but I'm doing it in a way that is present rather than I'm doing the Skype call and checking my phone at the same time. Correct. So it's around intentionality. I love it. Well, you talked about goals, um, which was the second rabbit hole I wanted to go down. (laughs) We have realized that, um, again, and this is my question for the audience, at what grade were you taught proper goal setting? Can you please put that in the questions box? I'm going to wait for a bunch of question marks because it didn't happen. Talk to us. A lot of us set goals, what we have discovered in the thousands of people that we have worked with. They set goals based on what they want. You have a different perspective on that. I make a distinction between what I call have two goals and want two goals. Early in the conversation, I spoke about how we often get hooked. We often uh, treat our emotions, our thoughts, and our stories as fact. And so we start to climb into these stories. And when we have a have-to goal, a have-to goal is a goal that is derived very often out of a sense of shame and obligation. So for example, um, I have to give this person feedback. I have to go to yet another meeting. I have to be on dad duty. Uh, We all do this. We all create these have-tos in our lives and we crawl into this have-to goal and it becomes a prison around us. We we develop a sense of resentment. We don't want to do the thing that we have to do because whenever anyone tells us we have to do something, even if it's ourselves telling us we have to do something, we feel resentful about it. Yeah. Oh, you're hitting it with her. (laughs) Yeah. So have-to goals are really interesting because we all do it but it creates a prison. And what that often leads to is you going to the meeting, but not being all in in the meeting. Mm -hmm. You are on your, you know, supposed dad duty, but again, you're checking your phone. And so I make a distinction between have two goals versus want two goals. Have two goals, a sense of shame and obligation. Want two goals are goals that are derived truthfully and truly from an internal sense of what it is that you value. Mm. So 
the examples that I gave earlier, um, a want-to goal might be I want to truly uh, have a authentic relationship and an effective relationship with my team. And so how can I bring that want-to goal to this meeting? Or I truly want to develop a good outcome for this client. That's important to me and my work. So what is the value that underpins this conversation that I need to have? Or, you know, I truly value being a parent. And so what does that look like in the space of this precious time that I have with my child. So the distinction that I make is that so often we crawl into these have-to goals. And what becomes critical is trying to surface a want-to goal, a values-aligned, why is this thing important to me? Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about faking it. If you can't find a want-to goal for key aspects of your life, of your work, of your being, then chances are that you are in the wrong job, in the wrong career, that you do need to make a shift. Mm. Again, that grit versus quit question we start going into again. And that what is the story that you aren't facing into? And the one thing I want to say, and I'm speaking to the people who that just hit home where they're going, I don't know what my values are. And you're saying, maybe I'm in the wrong career. And maybe that's the truth that they're fearing to acknowledge. And I'm speaking just from my experience in that moment, just because you don't have clarity on the path forward, doesn't mean that the path doesn't exist. One thing that you said, Susan, earlier is you said, how can I find a way to be present with my family while still traveling. Asking that question, how can I? And opening, there it is, opening yourself up to the possibility. It's where the journey begins. Yeah, I think that's true. It's it's so important to bring with yourself also a, a great healthy level of self-compassion. We live a life, we live in a world that would have us believe we are in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition, that we need to always know the answers and be go, 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 go. And being able to be self-compassionate, to recognize that you are Mm. in that space of confusion, that there's value in that space, and that there is a pathway out of that space, but that for the moment, this is a valuable place to be is critical. And I do talk about, because we can start to surface values in, in critical ways. You know, if you start asking yourself things like, what did I do today that was worthwhile? Not what did I enjoy? Because we can enjoy things or get feedback that we're good at things, but it's not necessarily what we find worthwhile. Um, so what did I do today that was worthwhile? If today was my last day on earth, what would be a meaningful thing that I would have done today? Those kind of pointers will start giving you a sense of what your values are. And if listeners are interested, I've actually got a free emotional agility quiz uh, that has a bit of a values sort to it and and helps you to think of values in the context of your emotional agility. So if you want me to give you that URL, I'm happy to do that as well. Yeah, do that right now. So it's uh, 60,000 people have taken it. It takes a few minutes to complete and you get a free 10-page report. And it's Susan David, S-U-S-A-N-D-A-V-I-D, SusanDavid.com forward slash learn, L-E-A-R-N, with my South African, Bostonian, Australian, New Zealand accent. 
<laughs> a beautiful combination. Uh, we want to shift to Q&A for our remaining time. So folks, now is the time to start submitting your questions. If you see any good ones, flag them or just scream at me, which you normally do anyways. First, first one, how do we begin doing this with our kids? You're talking about this idea of acknowledging our emotions, developing this emotional agility. What do I do for my little four-year-old, my one-and-a-half-year-old? Thank you for asking that. So I've got a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. If you're interested in this, uh, first you got a full chapter on it in emotional agility, but I also was interviewed uh, for an article for the New York Times called Teaching Your Child Emotional Agility. And so if you're interested, there's some ideas there. So briefly... And folks, find find that article. We'll link to it. Um, we'll end up putting it on the Correct. page on the website. And for folks who are listening on the podcast, we'll end up linking to it in the description below. So the first thing that I want to say is, um, you know, again, anything that you hear me saying, take it with a level of self-compassion because we all trying to do the best we can with who we are, with what we've got. Um, so the first thing that we know is that what happens often with our children is we often convey to our kids that there are good and bad emotions. So for example, if a child comes home from school and says something like, you know, mommy, no one would play with me today. And your heart breaks because you never wanted your child Mm. to be rejected in that profoundly disappointing way. So often what we do as parents is with very good intentions, we rush in to try to save our children from that difficult experience. So we'll say things like, oh, well, you know, he might not be worth playing with anyway, or let's go bake cupcakes, you know, I'll play with you, or um, I'll phone the mean kids' parents and I'll make things right. You know, we do things to try and stop our children from experiencing that pain. Now, even though we do it with good intentions, actually what we are teaching our children is that, emotions are to be feared. How do our children get good at navigating emotions? They need to be able to get practice at navigating emotions. So it's only when we don't set our child, there's a good emotion or a bad emotion, or like let's make ourselves happy, or we try to push that happiness. Instead, when we are with our child, there's this beautiful uh, in South Africa, where I was born, there's in Zulu, people say sawubona, sawubona. And it's a Zulu greeting. So you're walking down the streets and people say sawubona, yebo, sawubona, unjani, and they talk to each other. But sawubona literally means I see you. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. Mm. That is so powerful for our children that instead of trying to make their emotions go away or try to problem solve around them. We know that when we create the space where our children are allowed to feel what they feel, they feel seen, the difficult emotion actually starts to abate. And then what we also want to do is we want to say to our kids, what is, what is that emotion? So help your child to label emotions. There's a world of difference between anger versus sadness. And we know that children, even at the age of two, can start recognizing that difference. When you're reading your kids' books, how does Betty in this book feel? How does this person feel? You're starting to help the child. And then very last is instead of trying to put in solutions for your child, instead ask them, what can they do that would help them to feel better? 
Do they need a bit of time by themselves? Do they need to be with mommy a bit? Is there something? What what would help them? What you're helping the child to do is to recognize in themselves that things that they do can ultimately shape their emotional experience. And just a quick caveat. Just because your child is screaming down the CVS pharmacy and throwing a tantrum, or just because your child is really angry with his or her baby sister and wants to give the baby sister away to the first stranger that happens to approach in a shopping mall, doesn't mean that the child gets to act on their, their emotion. Again, at the beginning of the call of the of the webinar, I said data, not directions. Mm. You can show up to your child, help your child to label the emotions and still help your child to understand that striking or giving the baby sister away is not something you choose to do. Mm. What kind of brother do you want to be in this situation? My wife and I will be listening to this one together later because that was (laughs) not in a negative way, super helpful. Uh, Next question came from from Shanda. How can I start to incorporate this with my team and in my work? Thank you. A really important question and one that I talk a lot about. It's firstly, again, in organizations, organizations will often use language like I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. Or they won't necessarily do the just be happy, but they have much more of a just get on with it. Let's just get on with it. Um, Things might be going wrong with the project, but we just get on with it. And what starts to help us to be more effective as leaders is when we don't go into the space of there are emotions that are okay and not okay. So sometimes, for example, you hear leaders saying, well, there's change going on in the organization. Are you on the bus or are you off the bus? I don't know. And, they, I don't, you know, people are complex. People can experience anxiety about the change and happiness and worry about what it means for their job. And so as a leader, what becomes critical is creating space where, again, there's no wrong or right emotion, but rather where I see you and by seeing you, I bring you into being. And another thing that we can do is we can start with our teams recognizing, yes, there's all this change going on in the organization. Yes, the market is competitive, but what are our values as a team? What are our shared values? So who do we want to be as a team, even in the context of the chaos? How do we want to respond and be effective with one another? So those core ideas, and and again, it's something that I explore in the book, but those core ideas become critical, creating a safe space where emotions are okay. Awesome. And where you start to create a shared sense of value. Cool. Thank you. You got any good ones over there, Inez? David said, how do we deal with the guilt in any situation where we fear if we've made the wrong decision? The thing that I would say is that, again, this idea of Mm self-compassion, often we think of self-compassion as being, oh, you aren't being honest with yourself, or it's a sign of being lazy. So this idea of self-compassion seems very weak socially. What we know is that people who are self-compassionate are actually more honest with themselves. They're more motivated because they're creating a safe psychological space where they're able to say, gee, I did the wrong thing here. And I still 
love myself and I still accept myself because I did the wrong thing. So I would say healthy dose of self-compassion, recognizing that you did the best you could with who you are, with what you've got and with the information that you had at hand. And even if you could have made a different decision, you still did the best you could with who you've got, with what you are. And then the second thing I would say is that our difficult emotions often contain signposts to things that we care about. So beneath your guilt, there is often a value. I didn't do well by my team in the situation, or I betrayed someone in a way that is wrong here. Instead of focusing strongly on the guilt, hold that guilt lightly, but ask yourself, what is the value that is underneath the guilt? Mm -hmm. And how can I bring myself more effectively every day towards that value? Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm writing that one down. Okay, got it. I want to just underscore what you just said, because it is just, it's so aligned. One of the number one things we hear from people who have read the book is, I love the book, and I struggle to live the book. You're talking about your book, not mine, though. Not my book, Gary and Jay's book, their book. (laughs) Correct. Um, And here's why. It comes down to what you just said, that self-compassion we have realized that people will only allow themselves to feel like a failure for so long before they rewrite the rules of the game, usually by quitting, so they no longer have to feel like a failure. Recognizing that the road to mastery is a lifelong journey. It is not a destination. There is no arrival. And every single day you will fail. The question is, how are you getting better? Yeah. And if you allow yourself to fail, but you're still gentle with yourself. I mean, I, I, you know, loved writing this book and the book's done very well, but I wrote a book that failed, you know, a previous book. I dropped out of university. I've, you know, all of us, we, we, when we talk about goals, there's this veneered sense of linear achievement and achievement, whether it's, you know, achievement, I mean, sounds like an end goal, but the journey is not a linear journey. So when we recognize the humanity, this idea that we need to be self-compassionate because we are human and we are fragile, that becomes a gift that allows you to learn and and tweak and to move on effectively. And, you know, just one other thing that I wanted to say with this is often that journey requires a huge amount of courage because you you go into spaces that maybe feel uncomfortable. Gee, I'm in the wrong career. Or gee, I've done something and I can't get that thing back that I've now betrayed. Like that takes a lot of courage. And so again, the 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 positive veneer over it approach would say something like, well, you know, do away with your fear. Do away with your fear that you've got about the situation. But what I say is, you know, courage is not an absence of fear. Courage is not an absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. Courage is being able to notice your fear, your guilt, your anxiety, your stress, and make choices that are values congruent. So courage is not an absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. That's powerful. That's where we're going to wrap it because I want to leave people with that message and to sit with, 
folks, if you would like to get a copy of Susan's book, where is the best place they can go, Susan? Uh, your local bookstore or Amazon. Awesome. And if you guys, we do have an agreement with um, Audible. If you go to audible.com slash one thing and you sign up, uh, you'll get a free, if you don't have an account yet, you'll get a free credit, which you could use for emotional agility. Otherwise, well worth the credit as well. So Susan, thank you so much for the time. I just, I look forward to continuing to grow the relationship and I would love to do another interview down the road with you. I would love that as well. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks, our webinar with Dr. Susan David of Emotional Agility. I have to share with you, when I hung up the call with Susan, something happened in our business where uh, there was a pretty big deal, and I felt a lot of emotions, um, anger (laughs) being, being the primary one, frustration. It was amazing how quickly and easily it was to implement the content specifically the idea of wrecking, of, of having a more effective relationship with your emotions. Not saying, I am angry, I am frustrated, I am disappointed. Being able to distance myself from the emotion by saying, I'm noticing that I'm feeling angry. I'm noticing that I'm feeling frustrated. And then asking the question, what is the bigger value that lies underneath all of this that is provoking these emotions? I realized I value quality work. I value expectations being met. What was interesting was the moment that I acknowledged what the value was, all of the emotions dissipated. Later that night, I was with my wife and she um, had a moment where she was feeling some emotions on something and we walked through this asking what is the underlying value that is being violated here that's provoking these emotions and the same thing happened for her. I just thought this was so cool that I had to share with you. If you can walk away from this, what's the one thing you're going to take action on based on the episode? We hope that you will share with us, whether you email us, whether you put it on our Facebook page, we would love to hear how this helps you. Um, And that way we can also share it with Susan. So thank you again, folks, for listening. If you would like to join us for future webinars, go to theonething.com slash webinar. That's with the number one in the URL. So you can see which authors we have coming up. The next one is Cal Newport of Deep Work. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So stay tuned and we look forward to being with you in the next episode.